0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 27th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, which you can find at our new URL, www.commentary.org, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. You should be subscribing. You will be able today to read Noah Rothman talking about Afghanistan And we're going to talk about that on the podcast, but you can read his more considered prose on the subject. Uh, Pretty much uh, once you have heard my voice and you are hearing me speak about this now, got a lot of good stuff there. Got the July-August issue there. We're preparing a blockbuster September issue. We are preparing an even more blockbuster October issue this is the place to be commentary.org subscribe today and with me as always is the aforementioned associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john i just want to throw some uh some uh items uh at you guys uh simone biles um I think universally considered the greatest female gymnast of all time, and many people say is the greatest athlete of all time, maybe the greatest single athlete who has ever lived, uh, has pulled out of the team competition uh, at the Tokyo Olympics for the uh, women's gymnastics, having said yesterday or the day before yesterday after a problematic performance that she had the weight of the world on her shoulders Supposedly, she has a medical issue. This, She may not be out of the individual events. She is out of the group events. Add to this the loss, uh, the second loss uh, in, in Tokyo of the American uh, basketball team, which is <laughs> crazy because the American basketball team is almost by definition 10 times better than the basketball teams of any other country. We have um, Katie Ledecky losing... Uh, the gold in swimming to an Australian. We have, uh, did I mention Naomi Osaka, the tennis, uh, you know, uh, female tennis champion who lost yesterday. Um, American athletes seem to be cracking up uh, at this uh, very difficult um, and weird Olympics. And it just brings to mind this kind of general question about whether there is something wrong with the national spirit the national frame of mind the national approach to things if we even should be referring to it that way but you know uh the, the summer olympics are america's playground usually not the winter olympics where we have often struggled but in the summer olympics like we are the dominating force and have been for many decades and right now, China has more medals than we have. And I don't know. I, I am I am not a big sports person. Uh, I only watched the women's beach volleyball. On I haven't watched a lot of this. I've seen some highlights. It's not a big thing. I'm just asking a more general question along the lines of our miserable 21st century. Uh, are we? <clears throat> is something going wrong with the? You know, are are is this kind of? General malaise, disease, epidemic of loneliness—all of this—is there some common strand here that we can tease out in relation to the Olympics, or am I just Abe, Am I just putting well, too much weight to bear on this one? You know, on this one thing, probably. But I like to do that. <laughs> um, uh, the, what you left out, though—the
1: epidemic of loneliness and then the malaise stuff—I think something that conceivably um more directly um connected to this is um pride in one's country you go to the olympics as a representative of your country and we have been steeped in this uh you know quote reconciliation uh uh, uh uh you know a reckoning. reckoning and um the but the reckoning is really more like a um like uh all right admit it we're bad uh session you know it's it's uh it's a, it's a, it's a degrading
2: actually you know it's like it's a, it's a, mean, down,
1: a downgrading so if you just had some
2: context to you know america being overshadowed by its adversaries according to what i'm looking at here the soviets beat us in gold medals in 56 in 60 in 72 and in 88 and in 92 No, that's impossible. No, and yeah, that's Russia. Okay, so in at least a couple of summer Olympic sessions, we were beaten in the gold medal race, if this is accurate.
1: But no, my only point is, if if the uh, American athletes who have, by the way, it has to be said, in general, sort of led the celebrity social justice uh, wing, um, have, if they are now out there representing a country that has been uh, downgraded in their minds, um, then I'm not entirely disinclined to think that there is a connection there.
3: I will. Can I just add, as, particularly with the Sabon Biles case, um, she wasn't one of those super woke athletes. In fact, she was quite a leader on the sexual assault and sexual harassment stuff that went on in gymnastics, and has been a really you know very very solid, outspoken on that issue. When and I think we all forget too just the absolutely. Uh, ridiculous physical toll that this these sports take on elite level athletes. I mean, she gymnastics in particular on the joints. Even someone who's as extraordinary as she is, it's going to take a toll. So I, I I believe her when she's like, my ankles really hurt when I walk. Every step is painful. She gave a she talks about the agonizing uh, stuff. But I will say that I think um, we do in general as a culture now project onto our athletes the demands of our of our political polarized times in a way that it's very difficult even for the ones who want to refuse to remain neutral, right? There's a, that kind of pressure is, it makes them have to walk a very fine line in terms of keeping endorsements and keeping a high profile while also not offending people as well.
2: All right. But if anything has replaced love of country, it is an all consuming narcissism, right? It is the pursuit of vain glory and uh, personal achievement. And that should be sufficient to do pretty well in the Olympics, even if you know national pride doesn't suffice. So, yeah, I'm skeptical of the premise. I don't know. No. I mean,
0: let, hold on a second. So one thing about the Olympics uh, in, our, in our time <laughs> is that um, uh, they're, they're prestige and nothing but prestige. Because now uh, athletes can be paid. This used to be entirely an amateur undertaking. <laughs> People remained amateurs uh, and, in fact, in many fields, there was no money to be made in order to compete in the Olympics. That is now over. We are seeing an end to amateurism in general in the United States, with the Supreme Court decision that says that the NCAA does not have the right to deny uh, college athletes uh, the rights to remuneration for the uses of their images and stuff like that, which is just a chink. is the you know is is a chink in the armor? Uh, a, a breach in the in the armor of this, um, you know, of amateurism as a as a going uh, concern in athletics. It'll be gone in five years entirely, um, and uh, with with interesting, <clears throat> with fascinating consequences for the higher education system in the United States. By the way, uh, that we can't even begin to foretell. But anyway, it was only prestige, and now part. Maybe this is part of the problem that. It's only prestige. And it's like, so what? So everybody knows if you're Simone Biles, everybody knows you're the greatest athlete in the world. Either the pressure is too intense because all you can do is fail in a weird way. Like you've already been lionized as the greatest. uh, And so it's like being the greatest gunfighter, you know, in, in, in Dodge city, you know, at some point there's a 15 year old kid who's going to come. Everyone wants to shoot at you to see who's, you know, who can match you. Um, And maybe prestige is not enough, Uh, you know, particularly once you make, once you can make money off it. It's like, well, what, why am I, why am I busting my ass for this? And this is where Abe's right, particularly when there are no ancillary benefits from being a representative of my country. All I hear is that what I'm supposed to do is take a knee. I'm supposed to take a knee. And taking a knee now is some, particularly if you do it, you know, in Tokyo, you know, uh, you're taking a knee for social justice. You're taking a knee for the rights of women. You're taking a knee for what now taking a knee, which just means not um, uh, celebrating your national pride is a sort of shorthand for something better than national pride, which is your, which is your social conscience. And all in all, what's the point What's the point of doing well in the Olympics? It could be that. I don't know. But I, I don't know. There's something. A, 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 Abe and I have talk, talked about this for like 10 years, you know, that that things aren't working the way they're supposed to in the United States. There, there's a certain kind of level of incompetence. In certain areas, that is that is new. You okay, know, but like, yeah, I
3: gotta I gotta inject, inject okay. a little bit because when I was young, getting your face on the Wheaties box was the the kind of you know that was the that was why you went to the Olympics if you were looking you know for the fame and celebrity and the endorsements and all that. The idea of fame is now much much more multivarious, and the platforms for achieving it far greater. Uh, global status can be achieved by some chick who puts her makeup on in a cool way on Instagram. I mean, I do think that there are standards for assessing both quality and fame have changed so dramatically in such a short span of time that it's even hard to assess what's going on right now with with some of these athletes who are I agree like Simone Biles is an extraordinary athlete I mean it's just amazing to watch her do what she does
0: it is and and I think that is a brilliant observation because of course you know Yuval Levin's now famous pronouncement that you know Congress used to mold people and now it's a platform for people to get famous or people used to uh, you know, go on television in order to get into Congress. And now they go, they're in Congress in order to get on television. You could almost say that maybe what the thing, the benefit for these athletes, say you're Alex Kleinman, the, the, the star uh, beach volleyballer, is that you're going to get a lot of Instagram followers. And then you can monetize your Instagram. You can start getting... You know, people like—I mean, granted, she's not the Rock, but you know, Dwayne Johnson gets—I—I I was told by somebody Dwayne Johnson gets a million dollars a tweet if he does a sponsored tweet. I mean, the amount of money that can be made on social media is 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 unbelievable. But if that's really the only—if that's the driver of your ambition, uh, who knows whether that's puts you in the right mind space. You know, I mean, the Olympics were a kind of, you know, war by other means. Noah, well, you, mentioned was, the, you mentioned the competition with the Soviet Union. Like, we athletes wanted to do well in order to beat this. So, this was where we were actually head to head with the Soviet Union, where nuclear weapons weren't involved. And it was a very hard won thing. Very, very serious. You know, I mean, of course, with the b- most famous event being the hockey game, the, you know, whether we could, we could prevail in the, you know, in hockey in 1980. Or, or or whenever that was, we but did, but that, uh, yeah that, 1980. We didn't do the Summer Olympics in 1980, right? I can't remember. Anyway,
3: well, but the pursuit that but the pursuit of excellence is not always compatible with the pursuit of of social media engagement, and the people who want the the engagement is what now can be monetized to greater degree. I think that's an important point you make, John. Like you're looking ahead to how to monetize your brand. Not necessary, and a gold medal is part of that larger journey versus it being the journey itself.
2: I will concede, and I don't think there's very much psychological upside <clears throat> in the national ethos to having a you know a, a good showing at the Summer Olympics. I, I will concede, however, that there is a malaise that can result from a real bad performance that can contribute to a series of pre-existing factors in the in the national body politic economic political socioeconomic and otherwise um so it does it can't have a, a downside i don't know if there's much of an upside
1: well but here's another question and I, I, I don't know the answer are americans tuned in to, to these olympics much
2: i don't know they, they no. weren't and ratings now they are, are atrocious
0: no 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 ratings for the opening ceremonies were atrocious they've been climbing every day since people didn't People didn't want to watch, and people marching through an empty stadium—it was too weird. They didn't do it, like they. But they're watching the—they're watching the events. Apparently, there was like a forty percent climb in the ratings. I will let me just give you a counterexample, uh, you guys, again from my advanced age. Um, in 1984, the Summer Olympics took place in Los Angeles under the uh, directorship of a guy named Peter Ubaroth. Who became nationally famous because those Olympics were widely considered a triumphantly well-staged event, and it wasn't just that the Olympics were were good or that Peter Ubroth then became famous. It was that it was an ex- there was an explosion of patriotic fervor, the shouting of USA USA and the unfurling of flags and all of that. Oddly enough, that actually has its origin in the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. The, the national pride that exploded outward, uh, it was, you know, the year that Reagan was running uh, for a second term, Morning in America. We'd just been through this horrendous recession uh, that broke the back of inflation, but, you know, the unemployment rate went up to 10%. Horrendous six or seven years before it, you know, uh, the loss of Iran, the hostages, Three Mile Island, the presidency of Jimmy Carter, all of this, and there was this kind of pent-up moment of, we're pretty great. This country is actually pretty great. And you know who sucks? The Soviets. They're unfree. They're mean. They're terrible to people. They cheat. They use, they use performance-enhancing drugs. The IOC looks the other way. We're going to beat them anyway. This is a very big deal and there was an explosion of national patri- of of patriotism as a result of those olympic games it was a very different time we're talking about what, what is this like 37 years ago it's a different time a different ethos um and it's too soon after our our general it's like as though if the if we if we had gone to the olympics in 1980 let's say uh which we did in the summer olympics uh we would not have been in the right headspace to get all pay, you know to get all crazy and patriotic. Although people did again about the Miracle on Ice, the hockey game um, in the Winter Olympics. If we'd gone to the summer, we wouldn't have been ready. And maybe maybe it was necessary that those Olympics be in the United States, so that every pretty much everybody in the stands <laughs> was an American rooting for the Americans. Uh, nonetheless, I think you know what was the anomaly, which was the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, where those two black athletes, Tommy Smith, and I can't remember the other guy's name. You know, uh, talked through the talked during the playing of the national anthem, and then did the Black Power salute and all of that, which was you know generally considered a national scandal and a shame, and and an act of shamefulness, uh, is now of course a celebrated act of defiance, and it's what you it's what you want to emulate if you're a certain type of Olympic athlete. You want to be Tommy Smith. You don't want to be Bruce Jenner, who when he won the decathlon grabbed again this is a this is the originating event of this grabbed a flag from somebody in the stands and ran through the stadium holding the flag like it was the superman cape that's where the running with the flag thing started he it was a spontaneous moment that, that Bruce Jenner originated. So
3: now, I'll predict that, that by that, the way, that the very soon in our Olympic future, and a, a black American athlete is going to insist on a black national anthem being played if they win a gold versus the American, uh, our typical national anthem. Because you see this creeping into major events already. Like, they play both. But at what point is someone going to say, I'm not going to stand unless you play my anthem? I mean, this that, that kind of thing is, unfortunately, plausible in this day and age. Well,
0: that's... Uh... But yeah, delight. that's delightful to yeah, think about. Yeah, but
3: just
1: you know, t- to Noah's point, that um, love of country has been replaced with a kind of um, a narcissism or an egomania. Um, you can get the glory now. This is the thing: without being actually great at the sport, you get the glory from being the Kaepernick or or, or whomever. Right? You don't have to excel um, in the in the actual sport you have to make headlines for doing the the right
0: identitarian thing and then you're But a star. that's the important right, but that's that's the important point that that Christine was making which yeah. is that you have you have increasingly a kind of fame celebrity and and uh you know hero worship that derives from nothing right it doesn't derive from being the best athlete it doesn't derive from being you know, a great actor or something like that. It doesn't derive from being a national hero. It derives from uh, being a clothes horse uh, on on Instagram or being a TikToker who, you know, puts up offensive things. I don't know what. But, but, it, all, but also yeah. among professional athletes and
1: showbiz people, it also derives from um, talking down America. So, but
0: but it does it does because of the feedback loop that social media provides that there are people who are who who make that something worth celebrating. I mean, look, uh, Colin Kaepernick is a very interesting example of this. He was a a mediocre quarterback who couldn't get a job uh, on a team, and then. Uh, Even though during a, you know, everyone is like, this is not fair because, you know, he he's being persecuted because of his his political views. And what's interesting about the NFL uh, team owners is whether he was or he was not, they are more careful with their stewardship of their audiences. They they know who watches football and they didn't need the tourists that Colin Kaepernick was going to provide and until last summer and the George Floyd protests and the fact that, you know, so I'm just saying like people become famous. That doesn't mean that the overwhelming majority of people who, who are interested in the professions in which they become famous are driven to support them uh, because they're told that they're progressive and, and, and wonderful. Like, you know, you can be, I don't know who, I mean, you can be some, some, you know, highly activist celebrity. It's not going to sell more tickets or get more people to watch your, 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 your show the weekend that it debuts on Netflix, but it will get you the bubble. It will get you the liberal social media, media progressive bubble, uh, percolating, uh, uh, you know, on your behalf, I guess, uh, Anyway, uh, but I want to go back to the incompetence thing just for a second because uh, you know this is like a this has become a sort of a bugbear of mine for the last ten years and and I and I again I don't know that there's enough evidence to prove this because of course everything didn't happen live and in person and right in front of you all the time so that you know you can see the wires you can see you know where things go wrong but you know the famous opening of the wrong envelope or, you know, the, the, the misreading of the winner of the Oscar by Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Um, There's a whole bunch of things where it's like, it it shouldn't work like this. Like things should be more, you know, more competent down by the way to the, to the political parties and how they constantly uh, misread and bungle things um, and, and get, you know, ritually humiliated all the time uh, from people who you would think would know better how to how to run practical politics, and we'll talk a little about that in a minute. But first, I want to talk to you about bowl and branch sheets. Uh, they're great. They're comfortable. They're beautiful, uh, and they, you know. Your high-quality sleep doesn't stop at the quality of your mattress. Let's say you've gone out, you've spent a good good degree of money on a really comfortable mattress, but then you just throw some any sheet on it. Don't do that. Bolin Branch's ultra-soft organic sheets, transparently sourced and produced in safe air conditions, will provide you a difference that you'll feel while you know you're making a difference. Bolin Branch started with a mission, producing the highest-quality sheets on the market and doing so with ethical values uh, of manufacture and distribution, and today they're still the best choice for anyone who wants comfort that lasts. Uh, the Signature Hem Sheets, beloved bestsellers for a good reason, they get softer with every wash, buttery soft, lightweight, and a 100% organic cotton sateen weave that's perfect for all seasons with a variety of colors and in all sizes from twin up to California king, Bowl and Branch partners with family-owned businesses that align with the same values and standards. They're pledging to double US assembly jobs this year. To experience the best YouTube ever felt, choose Bowl and Branch. You can try the Mori 3 for 30 nights with free shipping and returns and my listeners get an exclusive 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code COMMENTARY at bowlandbranch.com. That's B O L L A N D B R A N C H bowlandbranch.com promo code Commentary. So let's talk about Congress and this question of the you know minimal co- competency of of Congress because I'm reading today that guess what uh, the infrastructure bill is uh, still in trouble and so is the reconciliation bill and Chuck Schumer played games last week to see if he could push things and Biden's this and this one's that and Bernie Sanders wants four trillion and this one wants three and a half trillion and Mansion. Is doing this and this one is doing that and nobody knows what the hell is going on and uh, uh mitch mcconnell uh, would have known what was going on if he were majority leader even with this 50 seat pseudo majority that democrats hold and meanwhile noah uh, you're struck by the behavior not of nancy pelosi but of kevin mccarthy the minority leader who of course a lot of people expect will be majority leader after the midterm elections in 2022 uh, pretty much uh, in relation to what is going on today in Congress, which is the opening of the January 6th hearings.
2: Yeah. um, So we had the opening statements today from uh, the chair of the committee, who's Benny Thompson and um, not the ranking member, but the most prominent Republican member of the conference or the committee rather, which is Liz Cheney, who gave a rather, Stirring opening address, uh, in my view. Um, And we've just seen nothing but defiance from McCarthy's members over January 6th. If January 6th was a legislative priority for the Republican conference, it would be a disaster because McCarthy can't keep his conference in line. There were 35 Republican defections in favor of the conference, the commission, the bipartisan commission, which failed in the Senate. Um, a smaller number of defections to vote for this conference, uh, this committee rather. And Kevin McCarthy comes out and calls the two Republican members who accepted appointments to this commission, Cheney and uh, Representative Adam Kinzinger, Pelosi Republicans in a press conference insulting his own members. Um, Look, this is not a partisan job. Being House Speaker is not about being the most flamboyant political figure on the stage. You are herding cats that's your. You're gay. You got to keep your conference in line. It's a little different for a minority leader, sure, but he wants to be speaker. And if this is the performance he's putting in, it's it's foreshadows ominously foreshadows a rather disastrous Congress for the what we can only expect will be a slim Republican majority if they do retake the majority. Back to Chuck Schumer briefly. Schumer's gambit um, last week was to. Say, well, listen, if you don't pass this bipartisan hard infrastructure pledge, what we all understand or plan, what we all understand to to be infrastructure when we say the word infrastructure, then we're just going to add it on to our human social, you know, uh, uh, metaphysical infrastructure package um, and just make it all that much bigger. So don't you dare defy us. That's not a threat. That's a promise. It demonstrates that passing the physical infrastructure bill actually makes it easier to pass all the other aspects of the Democratic agenda, reducing all the incentives Republicans had to pass the the stupid infrastructure package. It doesn't make any sense from a a strategic standpoint, merely a messaging standpoint. And that seems to be everything that anybody in Washington is concerned with. Messaging, winning the news cycle, not winning the actual legislative fight. Um, And yes, so if that that demonstrates a, a, a stunning lack of competence at the top, I can be convinced of that.
0: Okay, so here's here's the thing about these jobs. Chuck Schumer just started the job in January. Kevin McCarthy has never been Speaker of the House. He was Majority Leader. He is now Minority Leader. Being good at this kind of thing, and it is said that Nancy Pelosi is very good at it, though it's sort of hard to know, uh, but, I mean, let's say she's certainly you know not bad at it, um, is a... Is a there's no way to know whether anyone is going to do this well until they actually start doing it. So how do we know? We know that Mitch McConnell is a master of the Senate because he had a very clear understanding of what he could and could not do. And he did not attempt to do things that he could not achieve unless it was necessary for symbolic reasons, to make an effort, even if that effort was going to fail. But for the most part, he avoided the pitfalls of failure. He avoided the pitfalls of, of things that might happen that he could not predict or see ahead of time. And 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 in favor of thuddingly unimaginative, three yards in a cloud of dust, moving ahead to do what it, whatever it was you had to do, using the rules... Uh, being a master of the rules so you could figure out when you switched things and did things and all of that. Um, it's boring. It's a boring job. It's a time-consuming job. And it's a thankless job in many ways um, because uh, you don't get any respect anymore. You can't get special earmarks for your district or your state anymore the way you used to. And um, uh, but what you can do is advance your agenda broadly defined. And McConnell's agenda, as broadly defined, uh, basically was the transformation of the American judiciary. That was what was his focus. Harry Reid gave him the tools, his predecessor, a Senate majority leader, by blowing up the filibuster on, on, on uh, judicial appointments. Uh McConnell opposed it. He told Harry Reid this was a mistake and he would live to regret it. And boy, have the Democrats lived to regret it, right? So he's good at it. We have no idea whether Kevin McCarthy will be good as speaker, but I think you're right that it in 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 becoming a version of a mild version of Jim Jordan or a mild version of the guys who yammer and yell during, congr- you know, during uh, high profile congressional hearings in order to get attention or, you know, uh, peddle and, and believe that it's OK to attack your own side uh, in order to, get you know, present your bona fides to uh, the most uh, partisan of, of, of Republican voters in the country. Uh, this should not be giving re- Republicans uh, confidence that he will manage the House well in terms of getting... And and by the way, that's also going to be important because if he wins in 2022, if Republicans win and they take the House, they're not going to get anything done because Biden is going to be president of the United States and he is not going to give them anything unless they can figure out ways to do you know my, minor things. And so... Uh, How he manages this and how he avoids the pitfalls of looking like the giant boulder that stopped everything for no reason except for hatred with independent voters and stuff like that and giving Democrats something to run against him in 2024 is a very big
3: challenge. You know, this is important because uh, it's an important point because Noah's um, and it speaks to Noah's earlier uh, suggestion about the, the weird messaging going on here. I think you're you're clearly in a position of weakness, which he is right now. If you're finger pointing and making personal all of these allegations, you know who has a good message on the right right now, whether or not you agree with it or like her. Uh, it's Liz Cheney asked asked on CBS this morning about the GOP. She was very succinct. She says we cannot be a party that embraces an insurrection and we cannot be a party that embraces a big lie. She didn't name it. She just said, here's the party. Here's the kind of party I want to be part of. He's not taught the, the, guys on the other side of this are not talking about the kind of party they want to be there. They're wrapping themselves up in knots, not saying the one thing that they're obviously pursuing with their behavior, which is to support the Trump view of the GOP. She's pretty straightforward. And I think that message, whether or not you want the GOP to look like that, at least she's making sense with her message. Here's another data point
2: <clears throat> when Nancy Pelosi kicked off some of these members on this commission that McCarthy recommended. He can't appoint, but he can recommend. And he recommended some rather Trumpy voices in the party, which are indicative of the general you know, atmosphere in the party. I'm on record saying that was a mistake. I think it was stupid. Handed Republicans a talking point. We disagreed. But in the statement that Kevin McCarthy issued in support of this sort of thing, or in support of his members who were kicked off, he said, listen, we're going to have our own January 6th commission conceding the necessity to investigate January 6th. Elise Stefanik comes out today and she goes, listen, all these members were only kicked off because we were asking questions about Nancy Pelosi's security preparations. She doesn't want the answers to these questions. Neither do you. Do you want the answer? If so, go ahead and have your parallel investigation. They're just setting themselves up with these rhetorical attacks that sound good in the moment, but actually have consequences in the long term that no one seems to have devoted an ounce of thought to.
0: Ah, Abe, you have any uh, you have well, any thoughts on this? <clears throat> um, only that.
1: Just thinking about Christine's point about um, Liz Cheney because I, I watched her statement and I thought it was very good, and I agree it's a good message in and of itself. Um, but doesn't it matter whether or not it's popular? Doesn't that sort of shape? Doesn't that determine to some degree whether or not it's a good message? Um, Well, yes.
3: No, and it's not a good message in a vacuum.
1: Then it's not a good message.
3: Right. No, I mean, it's a good message for those of us who who don't like the direction the GOP is taking and has been taking under Trump. So, yeah, for yeah, I hear that and go, yeah, let's talk about how the party can return to some of its conservative roots because it has not been a conservative party under Trump. But I agree. Her message is not popular in the GOP right now. So the question becomes is is. She's an outlier in the GOP who's now become much beloved among never trumpers and the, and some in the liberal mainstream. So maybe there is no future GOP with someone like her in it. That's the question, right? They've bounced her from leadership. The I mean she's she'll probably survive also, any re-election challenge, but yeah, it's not popular.
1: And also the the question is, you know, um is there a is there an alternate message? Is it even possible that there's an alternate message in the GOP that's not her message that's also not Personalized, right? I mean, that's because you know if everything is um, is becomes um, uh, uh, personal. Then, then there sort of is no message at all.
0: There is no politics in the GOP uh, in the Trump era that is not personal. Right. There just isn't. He is. It's a cult of personality. That's what he wants. That's what they play into. Uh, we just saw the ritualistic humiliation of George P. Bush, the son of Jeb Bush, uh, who was abused and abased and insulted by Trump throughout 2015 and early 2016, who also sort of, you know, said that his, you know, uh, his uncle was a monster. And George George P. Bush, wanting to be uh, attorney general of Texas, sucked up to Trump and sucked up to Trump and sucked up to Trump. And guess what? Trump endorsed his his, his rival, uh, Ken Paxton. Uh, Yet yeah, last night, um, oh, by the so way, congratulations the, the, the indicted P- with yeah.
2: future indictments coming, Ken Paxton. More yes. of this d- deep commitment to anti-corruption initiatives.
0: Yes. So, uh, congratulations to George P. Bush, who um, sat there while his father was slandered. And then decided, you know, not to fight back and to try to, you know, like make common cause with his father slanderer. I hope that it was worth it for the deep disloyalty that he showed to his own parent and his own family. Uh, you know, this is a this is a this is a deserved comeuppance, but it also speaks to the nature of a cult of personality, which is that the. The person yeah, yeah. at the top of the cult of personality does not have any reciprocal loyalties. Like he's did he didn't feel the need to reward George P. Bush for this, you know, for this treachery toward his own family in his own behalf. But you said
2: something earlier that I think really is like a theory of everything <clears throat> that deserves further exploration, which is thudding unimaginativity. We have a, a dearth of creative thinking, of strategic thinking in the political class that is uh, really a shame to watch, and this is a bit of a digression, but permit me, the CDC will come out today and recommend masking again for people, regardless of your vaccination status, in certain parts of the country. Um, I can't think of a less creative approach to to the crisis of this pandemic and priority number one, which is getting the unvaccinated vaccinated. We have not given them one incentive, one instant gratification, a parochial... A uh, source of you know of of gratification for getting vaccinated. It's not telling them that they're not going to die, that they're not going to infect their loved ones. All that's not working. We need just an ounce of creative thought, and we have none.
0: There's one bit of creative thinking there. You got to say though, right? Which is which is. Uh, you don't have to do it everywhere. You only have to do it in certain places. That's at least a change from the national mask
3: mandate.
2: Yeah, and then the national mask mandate comes in two weeks when that doesn't work.
3: Well, and I was going to say, everyone who wants people to mask in places that where it's controversial will will always and have been using any CDC guidance that recommends it anywhere as as a way to argue that. I mean, it's not, it's effectively going to mean everyone's going to be masking indoors in a lot of places, even if. it's Can not you just
2: indoors. think of one incentive? I mean, these lotteries, right? They were worth like you know mocking a little bit, but at least See, they, they should have some some monetary incentive for people, even if it was, you know, they were bad. It's a terrible risk calculation, but the people who are unmasked and unvaccinated are terrible at calculating risk anyway. So they might as well have just jumped right into this sort of thing. See, but it, they should have made, made some sense on a, on a strategic level.
3: They should have auctioned off either a seat on the Bezos flight to someone who not uh-huh. only got themselves vaccinated, but convinced a hundred other people to get vaccinated and proved it or to the younger folks. Uh, one of these celebrities should, should transfer like, you know, a, um, half a million of their Instagram followers to that person. If they can do that same thing, like you, not only yourself get vaccinated, but you have to convince others to do it too. like incentivize them. It will not (laughs) work.
0: I am sitting here with my jaw hanging open at the thought that Joe Biden is going to let this happen. The CDC is not an independent actor. It is part of the executive branch. He is president of the United States. He is the chief executive. Uh, This is, politically terrible for him. And I don't think there is anybody who can come to go to him and say, if we do this, why will happen? In other words, like, there'll be, a, there'll be a reversal of half the growth of the Delta variant or three quarters of the growth of the Delta variant or something like that. They can promise him nothing. They can guarantee him nothing. But what we can guarantee him is a whole lot of trouble. And getting them a whole lot of trouble and this whole thing that basically a narrative is being created that Joe Biden and the Democrats want to rule American personal behavior by fiat and they can't reject it because it's true. Now, I you know, I think that the retroactive idea on a lot of the right that, you know, masking was always bad. I know there are the Jay Bhattacharya and there are people who who argue that masking was ineffectual, or that lockdown, but not everything is the same. So there's masking, there's social distancing, there's closing businesses and places where people congregate indoors in groups. And when there was absolutely no way to respond to the virus other than to get it or to avoid getting it through various actions like this, uh, it's very easy to go back and say it shouldn't have happened. We don't know what the consequences would have been had we not done a lot of that. They could have been bad. They could have been really bad. And there was no other option if you wanted to do something to stop the spread of the virus because there was no other way to stop this. Now there is, and people are willfully refusing it.
2: Uh, and, re- and restoring mask mandates will have it's so easily predictable. And I'm willing, I'm no epidemiologist, but I'm willing to stake my reputation on this that I'm re- reinforcing masking in places where people are already vaccinated is going to work. What you're not going to see is re- is mask mandates returning to precisely to the communities where it is needed. But there will be no enforcement of that forcing all these people who shouldn't congregate to congregate to each, with each other and, and undermine America's herd immunity. The answer is yeah. staring us in the face. And I can't verify the reporting, but according to the Daily Beast, the administration will not commit to encouraging, not mandating, encouraging private industries, private enterprise, private individuals to seek confirmation of an individual's vaccination status in order to achieve certain privileges, access, you know, for gratis services, even entry into these places, that seems like the answer that's staring us in the face, giving the unvaccinated a reason to get vaccinated for their own personal gain. And they can't do it, why? Because they're afraid Republicans will attack them. No, no I don't imagination. That's why? I don't that's, what that's what the Daily Board. That's what the Daily Beast reports.
0: I think they're saying it because Randy Weingarten of the teachers union does not want there to be a, uh, a regime in which. Uh, her people or unionized public workers are compelled to get vaccinated. She literally said this the other day. So the whole purpose of mask mandates on children is to stop the spread in schools, so teachers don't get infected. And meanwhile, Randy Weingarten is saying, "Don't you dare say that my teacher, people in my union, don't ha- don't have the right voluntarily to refuse." The vaccine, and that is who the Biden administration is going with here. It has an interest group that has literally come out against this, you know, sensible policy, which is you're a grown adult, you work for the you work for the you know, you work for the city or state or whoever you work for, go get vaccinated, or you know, you can't work anymore. Sorry. You don't have an unlimited right now. If you run a if you run an auto repair shop or something like that, you don't want your people to get vaccinated or not vaccinated. That's on you again. Like you could get sick, and then you, you you're you know that's bad. We're talking about school. We're talking about here people who do interface with you know and spend hours a day in a room with a bunch of other you know people, and so they should. If there should be if there should be mandates, there shouldn't be masks. They should be vaccinations.
3: And good luck finding out. uh, D.C. parents, for example, have been trying desperately to find out just a percentage, not what percentage of D.C. workers, including public school teachers, have been vaccinated. And the reason we can't get that data, the union has told teachers do not report whether you've been vaccinated or not. They don't need to know, even though we know that in schools, it's not the kids who are who are causing the outbreaks. It's adults bringing the virus in and, and exchanging it with each other. It's the adults that are the problem they should be vaccinated if they're going to be in rooms with children who themselves can't yet be vaccinated. But yeah, hang just, on, this is coming across right now. I'm sorry, Abe, you I just it. want
1: to make one point. Regarding the um, Biden allowing the CDC to return to masking and what they can promise him. they can promise him something, and it is a trick, and it's maddening, and the trick is this. The Delta wave, like every other wave, is going to end in a few weeks. And then... If we have masks on when it ends, they will say, "See, it was rising. Look what we did. People didn't want to do it. This is serious business, folks. We had to do it. I didn't want to do it, and we brought and we brought the cases down, and it was the right thing to do."
2: Hang on. Right, so well, this is, uh, briefly. This is coming across right now. So we have to introduce it. And this is according to Michelle Sindor. Can't confirm it. It's her White House source. Whatever it is. She she writes the following, quote, the CDC is expected to recommend today that people vaccinated for COVID resume wearing masks indoors under circumstances, certain circumstances. Those circumstances include if you are living in close contact with immune, immunocompromised people or unvaccinated people, such as children under the age of 12. Was anyone doing that before the advent of vaccines? No one in this audience was doing that, I guarantee you, maybe one of you and you know who you are. Everybody else was not behaving in this manic, neurotic fashion. They're trying to impose neurosis on you. Um,
0: what we know, or what we, there are two uh, data points here related to the to the Delta variant that kind of support Abe's uh, contention uh, in Britain and in India both, where it was raging. Uh, according to Scott Gottlieb, the evidence is that there that there is a spike followed by a crash. Uh, part, partially because the variant is contagious enough that we only know about its spread through testing. And testing, of course, is entirely voluntary, mostly, by people who want to travel or something like that or need to test uh, unless, they're, unless they're doing it because they feel sick or something like that. But mostly, it's voluntary uh, under certain circumstances. So the spread of it could be much more widespread, in which case... We may be effectively moving toward herd immunity through people getting COVID asymptomatically and developing antibodies against it just, you know, naturally. And so, yeah, Abe, in that case, what we could see is the natural pattern of Delta in Britain and in India coming here where we've had this spike and then it's going to die out. And then, yeah, they'll say, oh, it's the masking that right. did it. Although, of course, if nobody masks in Mississippi and it dies in Mississippi, how you're going to say that the mask mandate that was obeyed elsewhere uh, caused uh, the, you know, caused the, the spike to uh, bottom out in Mississippi is uh, hard to fathom. Well, it won't be considered. It'll, it'll, that'll be ignored. <laughs> Right. Uh, and you know what shouldn't be ignored is the X chair. I'm sitting in one right now, as my colleagues can see on our on our, our video chat here. I'm sitting in the X chair. I'm enjoying the LMAX temperature regulation. It's hot in this room. I got it set on cold. You can take your seating to a whole new level. That LMAX temperature regulation, patent pending, allows you to experience cooling heat and massaging your lower back. Like if you're feeling a bit warm, you can set it to cooling. Uh as, as, as is the case, you know, if, if, if the air conditioning in your home or office is cranked up too high, set the LMAX to heating, which will also warm up and soothe your tired muscles. And you can turn on the massage therapy and relax. I'm not doing it now because it makes noise and you'd hear it and it would be annoying. The patented dynamic varial lumbar support is already there. And it's already best in class with incredible, responsive low back support. But now the LMAX guarantees your comfort. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. There has never been a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair and boost your productivity by treating yourself to the joys of X Chair. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call one 844 4 x to save $100 off your order. Chair is a 30-day guarantee, complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free Xwheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Okay, very briefly, uh, things are going, as I promised at the beginning of the podcast, things are going south very fast in Afghanistan. Um, H.R. McMaster, uh, former National Security Advisor and author of, of what many people consider to be the single best book on on uh, the uh, milita- American military's conduct in Vietnam, Dereliction of Duty, has an op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal today that effectively says he's not going to relitigate or re- discuss uh, Biden's decision to pull out of Afghanistan. That ship has already sailed. Uh, but um, here's what we need to do. We need to do everything short of pulling, uh, you know, everything... Uh, if we don't have boots on the ground fine we have to use airstrikes we have to support that we have to stand up the afghan military we have to stop making uh decisions uh that help the taliban like pushing for the release of taliban political prisoners which apparently mind-blowingly the u.s government did last week um uh, Noah, you, you uh, this is uh, what McMaster says and here and, and give us some sense of the facts on the ground.
2: Yeah, I'm just survey I was just surveying the headlines out of Afghanistan on Monday. Monday alone. <laughs> and they were the following. Um, The administration has backed off its desire to dial back strikes on the Taliban before August 31st. The idea was to not commit to airstrikes at all. They were wrestling with themselves in public over this, and they finally did out of necessity, and they were only going to target al-Qaeda-linked targets. That's off the table. The Taliban has advanced um, much more rapidly than they anticipated. They are already in control of a variety of suburbs around the city of Kandahar, which is a giant Second, second largest city in Afghanistan, the spiritual home of, of Afghanistan, a giant economic hub. Um, and they've executed strikes on targets, Taliban positions. Um, and while this is apparently slowing the advance, we, the Afghan government forces have not recovered any territory they have lost. And CENTCOM Commander General Kenneth McKenzie said that it's far more difficult than it was to support Afghan forces because we don't have any air bases in the country. We're operating from out of country. Um, Elsewhere in in Afghanistan, a uh, border uh, between uh, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan was reopened by the Pakistani government, which is in full Taliban control, um, reopening um, what uh, Pakistani officials called Afghan transit trade, which means the mundanities that typify relations between states, border control, trade relations, migration, all that stuff is resuming with the Taliban, legitimizing it as a governing entity. And finally, we have a nascent refugee crisis on our hands. Thousands of Afghans are already streaming into places like Iran, Pakistan, and Tajikistan. We had a a piece in the Wall Street Journal now um, yesterday, which was very interesting, demonstrating how so many of these refugees, particularly those going into Iran, aren't staying in Iran. They're transiting into Turkey with the aim of transiting into the European Union. Now, if anybody remembers what the European Union's experience was during the Syrian civil war, it was profoundly destabilizing, politically destabilizing, economically destabilizing. It tested their commitment to the Schengen zone, which is this the movement, free movement across borders in the European Union. It saw fences and barbed wire uh, build up again around uh, the borders of Hungary and Bulgaria for the first time since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and it resulted in the rise of nationalist politics and, nation- and populist parties uh, that were also detrimental to the idea of European integration. And Europe is surely, well. this is going to be a smaller wave, if it, if it arrives, they're surely more sensitive to the, to the fallout that could arise as a result of this sort of thing. So all bad stuff on the horizon and only as a result of our engineered defeat
1: but so close on the horizon. I mean, I, I think I don't think it's inconceivable that because the pullout was such a bad idea and executed in such a bad way, um, that it doesn't quite happen. I mean, troops can be out, but we can. late. We can, yeah, but we can, but we can continue to be very deeply engaged there, starting now and never stop. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like we could sort of two months from now we can go, Hey, what, what happened? I thought we were done with the war in Afghanistan. You know what oh, you're we're saying? That we can go
2: back at a time and place, not of our choosing. Yeah. That's always on the table. No. Um, it's a sort but of, but it's thing not that just that. I General mean, Lloyd Austin warned of,
0: I mean, the, the McMaster piece basically says, uh, airstrikes, 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 and a lot of covert, uh, action. um, I think uh, and money and 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 doing whatever you can and sort of encouraging the Afghan government not to do dumb things. Having said that, uh, what what the general cliche is is people expect the government to fall within six months. Well, if that's the sort of thing that people say in the media, uh, uh, that six months is a is an absurdly optimistic number like what is, it could be six weeks it could be six days after you know it could be six hours oh. um there's if if the afghan government has no reason for existing any further um and 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 the heart of the effort to resist the taliban and to have an independent afghanistan if that effort uh, has been made hollow and pointless and useless why would, wouldn't would everybody just pack up and run for the
2: hills? And, you know, the fragility, the apparent fragility of the government and the forces that we've been supporting there is yet another argument in favor of the unfalsifiable claim, which is always supported by whatever happens on the on the, the retrenchment side, that this is just a, a losing effort and we should just be rid of it as soon as possible. But their arguments have been proven hollow. What did they say? They said that we would when we would retreat, there'd be less. We could unilaterally declare an end to the Afghan war. We've seen more war. They said that they would, there would be a regional stability that would arise from our absence. We've seen less regional stability. They said Americans hated this war. They didn't care. And if they did care, they just wanted to wash their hands of it. Who's celebrating this? Where are the parades? Who's heaping laurels over the, the shoulders of Joe Biden? The ominous silence from the American public as they watch their 20-year investment in this country crumble must be unnerving the White House, would be unnerving to me.
0: I don't know if it's unnerving them. I, I I honestly don't. I mean, it would be unnerving to you because you 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 don't you don't operate according to their priors. I think the idea that you want to be able to go to the American people and say you ended a twenty-year war is just was just catnip. It was just it was irresistible. He couldn't he couldn't resist it, particularly since he was mad that the fighting of the war didn't go the way he wanted it to. His idiot path that he wanted it to uh, in. 2009, 2010, when the surge that uh, Obama did agree to, uh, which was highly problematic and didn't have the, you know, and and didn't serve end things was nonetheless successful enough to create another 10 year, you know, space for, for, uh, for that government and for, you know, girls to go to school and people to still have free speech and not to be murdered uh, for not wearing burqas. And, you know, we'll see what things are like in November.
2: By November, I'm going to put money on the table. We're going to be talking about splitting Afghanistan up into three parts. It's the only really? solution. Really? Ah, uh, gee. Joe Biden's wow. favorite solution. He's to Split this place right? up yeah. into three parts. Yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. the he's Neapolitan good, a... ice
3: cream approach to foreign mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or the Trinitarian, yes. I mean, he grew up as a Trinitarian, and he loves to He wanted Iraq, Iran, Iraq in three parts. He wants Afghanistan in three parts. You know. Democrats are going to want California in three parts because they're going to think that they can get six senators out of it. You'll see. Anyway, uh, so guys, we will uh, we will conclude this conversation and invite you to come back tomorrow to listen to us yet again. For Abe, Noah and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.